well as you are making your way back to your seats, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 this morning, we are looking at verses 18 through 27. It's also printed for you in your bulletin on page 10. There's also pew Bibles available if you prefer to read straight from the scripture. But again, 1 John chapter 2. We are reading this morning from verses 18 through 27. As we are continuing our journey through the letter of John, again, taking a a brief detour from John's gospel, we are now in the letters of John, and so we are making our way slowly but surely through this letter, and again, chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Hear the word of God. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught to you, abide in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, it stands forever. Amen. Again, as we continue this journey through the letter of John here in chapter 2, as we wind this specific chapter down to a close, John wants us to focus our attention on just a few, few things. The first thing he wants us to see here in this section is he wants us, John that is, he wants us to pay attention to the time. Pay attention to the time. Many of you know about me already in our less than year together that I am always late, right? Service starts about 10.34, 10.35, okay? For me, that's 10.30, all right? It's close enough. <laughs> uh, I'm late. That's just, that, that's my nature for, for better or for worse. But here, John, again, wants us to pay attention to the time. Notice that he labels it in verse 18, the time that we live, the time even then, as the last hour. The last hour. You know, whether it's the the final minutes of a hotly contested football game, you know, what they call a two-minute drill, uh, whether it's the end of a basketball game, what they call crunch time, uh, or you know, the bottom of the ninth inning in a baseball game, you know, bottom nine, two outs, two men on base, you know, the end of a game, you know, the end of even a conflict, thinking, uh, thinking like battle terms, right, the, the ending conflict these ending times, a game, a battle, whatever, are often the most important. They're the most dramatic. They're the most crucial. 
that it requires from us the most focus and the most energy and the most diligence. And that's exactly what John is getting us to see here, that we are in the final stages of a spiritual conflict, and so resolve and diligence and focus is required. You'll notice, again, he labels it as the last days, and that's a a phrase that comes up uh, other places in Scripture. Now, the New Testament, as you know, refers to the coming of Christ, the advent of Christ, as really marking uh, the final chapter, the final chapter in the story that is redemptive history. These are the last days. And what's interesting is that the length of these last days is undoubtedly longer than the biblical authors themselves thought. That's interesting. John clearly thinks you know, that the last days might not go far beyond his own life. Paul certainly thought that. When you read the Apostle Paul, he makes it very clear. In fact, the posture in which he lives his life is one that thinks that Christ will culminate history very, very soon after uh, his own life. That's obviously not been the case. The last days perhaps are, are going beyond and longer than even the New Testament writers thought. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because what does Christ say in his own ministry? That no one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father does. But nevertheless, we live in these last days. Again, the final chapter has dawned. The, the timer has been set. The alarm clock has gone off, if you will, marking the final days with the coming of Christ, the end of the spiritual conflict that Satan, you know, the devil, the works of darkness, that all of these spiritual forces have been put on notice, if you will, that the battle is wrapping up. But it's not totally wrapped up yet. Think, I mean, think in World War II, right? You have D-Day, that famous day, but then only later do you have V-E Day, right? Victory in Europe Day. But as historians look back and you know, encapsulate World War II, as you know, D-Day kind of marked the beginning of the end. D-Day marked you know, the battle finally wrapping up, and it became apparent that the, you know, the Allied forces would win the day, but it wasn't until the final day, Victory in Europe Day, when the victory was officially declared that everything was then summed up. Well, again, that's what's happening here in John, that the king has come, he's ushered in his kingdom, namely Jesus Christ, a kingdom of light and the renewal of all things. But all of that will happen under the lordship of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, quite literally the anointed one. He is the king to come. And all of these things, this shalom that I prayed a minute ago, this peace that will settle on this world will only come under his lordship and under his authority, again, as the king of kings, as the God of gods. And so it's his lordship which extends and encompasses all that confess him as savior, who acknowledge and who confess that he is who he said he is. That he has done what he said that he has done. That he came to atone for human sin, to offer forgiveness, to offer eternal life. That those who trust that are what we know are Christians. We have, again, God's name. We have the name of Christ stamped upon us. And those who do not accept that reality, those who do not confess the truth, those who are not Christians are, to use John's phrase here, antichrists. We begin to see that term, a very you know, 
hot term, if you will, one that kind of gives us pause in verse 18, that those who do not confess the Lord of Lords, those who do not confess the coming king and his lordship, are what John calls antichrists, anti-Christians, really. And again, that's a term, particularly antichrist, that gives us pause because we have to somehow disarm and walk back that term as it's often used in our culture, right? We have this image of, you know, like, you know, someone with horns and, you know, someone wearing like a kiss mask, you know, the band kiss, right? The face paint, like, you know, this like just crazy kind of figure. And that's not quite what John has uh, in mind here. Of course, there are times the word antichrist can be applied in that radical way. It can, it can be used to describe someone just aggressively opposed to Jesus. It can be applied even uh, to that, that final figure, that end time figure, uh, the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians. But we have to admit that final end of time, final antichrist figure is clouded in a ton of mystery, a ton of mystery that we're not entirely sure how that's all going to look. We have to admit that. We have to kind of come to that notion with a, a dose of um, exegetical, if you will, humility. Okay, it's no way made very clear in Scripture. And that's why, again, you have these countless interpretations that have come over the years. You have these Hollywood scripts and you have these, you know, best-selling graphic novels and all of these things, okay, that certainly have a flair for the dramatic. But what John wants us to see here what his whole point is, as he tells us about the time we live in, paying attention to the time, is that we don't have to wait until the end time, Antichrist. Because there are many, lowercase, if you will, Antichrists, already present. And again, these aren't the, you know, the kiss mask wearing, you know, dramatic Hollywood script figures, they are simply people who have not confessed Christ, simply people who reject him. Again, perhaps some aggressively, vehemently, but some maybe just passively, some who do not confess Christ as Lord. And because that's the time in which we live, and if we're honest, it's a time that seems only more okay with rejecting Christ, not confessing Christ, because that's the world we live in, John simply calls us to, to vigilance, to focus, to, to awareness of the time in which we live. Because if we're surrounded by Antichrist, you know, that power and that presence, if you will, then it means that we as Christians, those who confess Christ, have to be all the more diligent to bolster our faith, to secure our faith, to feed our faith, and of course, we do that through the means of grace that God gives, through the church, through worshiping together, through his scripture, through the table. That when you know you live in hostile territory or in a hostile country, what do you do? You hunker down. You bolster your faith. But then, of course, you don't just keep it and, and, and hoard it. You share it. You go out and tell others about Christ, that they too might know the blessings of the kingdom that is to come. And so again, John wants to just kind of set the alarm clock, if you will, and call us to reminding of being in the last hour. But secondly, he calls us to pay attention to the temptation. The temptation. 
So if at first he calls us to pay attention to the times, he now calls us to pay attention to the temptation. Look in verse 19. He's now speaking of Antichrist, which is interesting. Because in verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And then look in verse 26. John says, I write these things to you about those, again, thinking of Antichrist, those who are trying to deceive you. That's sobering. That perhaps is even shocking that as he's speaking of Antichrist, he now says those folks, not all of course, but those folks were at one point with you. He points out they had emerged from the original community of faith. These are people perhaps who were a member of what we would call the visible church, right? The church that we can see the church that we can be a part of just by walking into the doors of a building like this, they're part of the visible church, but for whatever reason, they eventually abandoned the faith. They were allured by something else. We know that in John's day, as he wrote this letter, it was the Gnostic movement, right? This philosophy that had cropped up and borrowed things from Christianity, and it had allured people into this sort of offshoot way of thinking that sort of, you know, twisted Jesus and his words into things that they were never intended to be. But for whatever reason, this is instructive for us today, that this is, in a sense, if you will, the parable of the sower that Jesus gave writ large, right? That we can hear the word of God, we can experience the word of God, we can even be a part of the people of God in terms of the visible church, but perhaps it hasn't actually taken root in our lives, hasn't taken root down into our hearts. This is instructive for us, again, as Christians today. And it's instructive for this reason. It's instructive because it helps us to, again, realize that Christianity can take a lot of different shapes. That there are, of course, Presbyterians like us, but there are a whole host of other denominations within Protestantism. That Christianity can take a lot of different shapes, denominationally, but also even personally, right? There are people in this church right now who are on fire for God, spiritually mature, have been walking the road of faith for a long, long time. Then there are those who are new to the faith, who are uh, immature believers, who are still learning what it means to be a Christian, who are walking that road in the early, early stages and while we can be tempted to have sort of a cookie-cutter uh, view of Christianity, that every Christian walk should look like ours. Every uh, denomination should look like ours, right? We can have this sort of cookie-cutter understanding of the Christian faith. But what John wants us to see here when he's contrasting Antichrist and Christian, that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, at the, end, at the end of history, what will ultimately separate the sheep from the goats? What will ultimately separate the Christian from the anti-Christian? Isn't our good works? Isn't our denominational um, distinctives? Isn't even our own piety? What ultimately will mark the Christian as over and above 
the anti-Christian, the sheep over and above the goats, is that do you still think that you need Jesus? Do you still think that you need Jesus, or don't you? Again, at the end of the day, what a Christian is, is somebody who admits their need for Jesus in the terms in which he came. That's it. That the Christian walk, as we know, can a lot of times be two steps forward, one step back. It could be a roller coaster. But at the end of the day, what marks the Christian over and above the anti-Christian is, again, do you acknowledge and admit till the end your need for Jesus, your need for his grace, your need for his gospel. Because again, to use John's context here, you know, the anti-Christian or the anti-Christ in his time and in this specific congregation was someone who knew perhaps a lot about Jesus in the beginning, but then over time they found Jesus to be unsavory or they found him to be unfitting for the times. That his whole message of grace and judgment and sin and God coming down and becoming a man and doing for us what we can never do for ourselves, it seemed to fall out of fashion in their minds, and so they ran into other ways of thinking, to other ideologies, namely Gnosticism, which tried to make Jesus a more socially and culturally acceptable version of himself. And so what did, what did that evidence at the end of the day? What it evidenced was that that person didn't lose their faith. We don't believe that. That person perhaps never really had saving faith or or, or resting in Jesus to begin with. And so again, at the end of the day, what marks a Christian isn't our good works, isn't our piety. We don't want to look to our own lives to, to justify that. At the end of the day, a Christian is someone who remains faithful and steadfast in their admission for Jesus and what he came to do on his own terms until the end of their life. That's it. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so how do we do that then? Our last point. We pay attention to the times. We pay attention to the temptation to abandon the faith. But how do we fight that temptation? Thirdly and finally, we do it by paying further attention to the truth. By paying further attention to the truth. Look in verse 21. It says, I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Don't miss that. Again, it kind of takes that term Antichrist out of the spectacular Hollywood definition we tend to give it. And John makes it very simple. He who denies that Jesus is who he said he is. That's the Antichrist. And so how do we fight that temptation? Again, by paying further attention to the original truth. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. For if what you heard from the beginning, the original good news, abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Again, John calls us to bolster our faith, to bolster our confession, to bolster our confidence by paying more diligent attention to the truth. You've probably heard it said before that, uh, you know, those who are employed by like the FBI and places like that uh, who are called to spot counterfeit money, right, in those anti-counterfeit divisions, you've heard it before perhaps that they don't study counterfeits, do they? They study the real McCoy. 
that people who study, people who fight against counterfeit money are experts in the real thing. They study the $100 bill, you know, the $50 bill, whatever it might be. They study what a check should look like, the real check, the real dollar. They study it, you know, diligently down to the, 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 every square millimeter of that bill, of that check, so that they can spot a forgery then when they see it. They so know the real thing, they so know the genuine article, that when, they, when, it, when, a, when a substitute comes along, they can spot it from a mile away. That's, again, what John is calling us to do here. That we fight temptation, we bolster ourselves in the time in which we live by clinging more tightly to the original message of the gospel, the original message of his truth. That Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's amazing that Jesus, when he was in, um, well, in John 6, when we have a recording of what Jesus is doing, if you recall, he just feeds the multitude in John chapter 6. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. He just fed the multitude. So he is ushering in his kingdom. He is bringing his kingdom to bear in this world. He is setting things right. He's turning back the clock. He's announcing again the final days have come, that now the king is here. And see what this king can do. He just fed a multitude. He'll do greater things than that. But on the heels of that miracle, if you remember, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people. And it's a crowd of people not unlike us, who in encountering Jesus, who in knowing Jesus, who in claiming you know, to have perhaps a relationship with Jesus, they ask him, Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Your kingdom has come here. It's, it's begun. It's setting up. Now what must we do? What is our marching orders? What must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, believe in the one who he has sent. Believe in the one who he has sent. Fix your eyes more intently on the Savior, the author and the perfecter of your faith. What is our mission here at Lake Osborne? What is your mission as a personal Christian? To believe in the one who he has sent. Again, that we might know that truth more deeply, that we might apply it more effectively to every area of our life so that when other competing ideologies try to creep in, when doubts creep in, when temptation creeps in, when these last days in which we live get us down and discourage us and make us wonder if there's any hope, we can be reminded again that Jesus has come, that he set all things right. And at the end of the day, that those who abide in that truth will abide with him forever into eternal life. That's how John ends. He says, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. May we believe that more deeply this morning. May we all fix our eyes more squarely on the truth of Christ Jesus and his goodness to us. And may we heed John's words carefully that we do live in the last hours as there are people around us, our neighbors, our coworkers, who need to hear, who need to hear the King has come, the Savior has come, that eternal life is offered for all who abide in him. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, again, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for that good news, that good news that if we're honest, sometimes does become old news. We've heard it so many times. And yet, if we're honest, Lord, we need to hear it again because we live in a world that wants to derail us. We live in a world that gives us so many competing messages of what life is really about, what is most precious, what is most true. And so, God, we do want to be people who every week come and reorient our lives around that original good news, that you are God, that you love us, that you gave your son for us, that you have forgiven us, and you offer eternal life to all who trust that simple message. So, Lord, may we be reminded of that again. If we have ever doubted your love or wondered if the sins of this past week have, uh, have forfeited that love, then maybe hear again that we have not, that we still abide and remain in your love. And Lord, though, may we also be uh, motivated to take that message, that simple message, yet that profound message, to those who you have put in our paths, friends and coworkers, Lord, family perhaps even, that we might enjoy the blessings of your kingdom, the blessings of eternal life with all. If you desire, Lord, that none should perish, that all should come to the knowledge of your truth. So use as we pray for your glory and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.